to go ahead and get started with our amazing guest today. Anne B. Friedman is a former Des Moines woman whose family consists of several well-known influencers, including her husband, author and writer Thomas Friedman. Her family of origin is best known in Iowa because of their success in the shopping mall business and whose surname Buxbaum is associated with many, many philanthropic causes. I'm delighted to have Anne with us. She is a graduate of Roosevelt High School. And the focus of our call today is Anne Friedman's dedication to education and early childhood development. And it's because of this passion that she created a new museum in the Washington DC area called Planet Word. And with that, and welcome to the Potluck Podcast. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Julie. This is great. Um, I didn't know about your podcast, but it's so great that there's a venue for people to gather and talk about Iowa and Des Moines. And, um, you know, when people ask me, where am I from? Or, you know, I say I'm from Iowa. I'm from Des Moines. And... Uh, that still defines me to this day. Good. Well, let's take a little trip down memory lane. Let's see. Was uh, did you read uh, Bill Bryson's Memories of a Thunderbolt Kid? <laughs> I read one of his books. Yes, and uh, you know, I have always said if I could, if I had to give myself a new name, I would be Greenwood. <laughs> and so the descriptions of Greenwood school and you know south down by the railroad tracks that that uh I that was real <laughs> I remember that <laughs> so. well tell us tell us about some of your other early memories of of Iowa and where do you where did you grow up and what did you do so for fun? I was born in Marshalltown and then as my family started developing shopping centers we moved um, so the first one was in Cedar Rapids, moved there when I was two till four. Then we moved to Devonport, Bettendorf, and uh, I lived there uh, until we moved to Des Moines in um, when I was in fifth grade. Uh -huh. and, and you went to Greenwood. And no, I never went to oh, Greenwood. I never love that word and that name. Um, so I don't know what it's like today, but I went to Merrill. So Merrill was a five to nine, grades five to nine school, which is really cool when you're a fifth grader, you know, 10 years old, and you're going to school with basically ninth graders who in a lot of places would be in high school already. Um, so, so that was a great experience. I, uh, think that I got a fantastic education at Merrill, had opportunities to be on the student council and, you know, just to start to, you know, do some things in, with leadership and community, uh, and, um, then went to Roosevelt and, you know, my mom is a Roosevelt grad. So uh, she grew up in a house on Pope Boulevard in Des Moines. And um, <laughs> the funny thing is when I was little, I didn't understand this word Roosevelt. I thought she was saying Rose of Felt. <laughs> and so, oh, you know, I don't know when it dawned on me what Roosevelt was and, you know, learned American history and who the presidents were. But anyway, uh, so, so I went to Roosevelt, then 10th to 12th grades. So words matter, right? <laughs> well, there's all these words like Mondegreen, you know, when you miss hear lyrics to a song, like Mersey Dotes and Dozy Dotes and things like that. So now that, um, I work, a, you know, I founded Planet Word, I'm much more alert to people who have those misunderstandings like I did as a child. Yeah, as you can see by the background, everybody on the call, this these are pictures from Planet Word, uh, your your Instagram account. And you've taken this old school building. I'm surprised they didn't, 
you know, they didn't tear it down and build condo buildings or office buildings, but I guess it was on the historic red registry and wow. turned it into a museum, which is just perfectly located. It's close to, close to um, the White House. It's close to a Metro stop. It's, it's, tell us how this came about. So you're right. Um, this is a National Historic Landmark building called the Franklin School. And originally it was in a school and it was a National Historic Landmark because of its architecture, which was very unusual at the time. It was built in 1869 for the beauty and the high windows and uh, the abundance of air that circulated in the building. So its architectural features are why it was first named a National Historic Landmark. And then the, its second distinction is because in 1880, Alexander Graham Bell sent a message to a colleague who was uh, at the Franklin School and Bell was a couple blocks away and he sent this message using light waves. And he called that invention the photophone. But he wrote and said that someday this will be more important than the telephone, which of course he also invented. And so it's known as the birthplace of wireless right there wow. at the Franklin School. But uh, even more important to my decision to uh, tackle this renovation project and, and house the museum at the Franklin School is you can see whoever's watching on the screen behind me in my office, this wallpaper. So the wallpaper is, I commissioned, it's made up of 12 different pages from the novel, The, the Secret Garden which was my favorite book as a child. And the author, Frances Hodgson Burnett, lived a block away from the Franklin School for part of her life. She was English, but she did live in Washington. So when I found that out, it was like, something is calling to me. I have to tackle this project because, you know, becoming a real estate developer and taking on a National Historic Landmarks restoration was not what I planned to do. I was 64 when we started, um, but the city, you know, it had been used as a homeless shelter um, before the, the building was completely abandoned and shuttered and it was not safe inside. There were holes in the floor. It was full of lead paint dust and bird droppings and not to mention things that don't fly. And um, so it wasn't safe for people experiencing homelessness or anybody else. And when I first went there, uh, in fact, for a tour of the building, there was yellow police tape, you know, strung across the stairways. Like, do not, you know, it's not safe enough to climb up these stairs. And um, so I knew it was a gigantic restoration project ahead of me and um, wasn't sure that that I should tackle that. But um, the city kept coming back to me saying, we love your idea for a museum about words and language in this historic former school building. And like you say, it is centrally located. It combined education and technology, the history of telecommunications, which I wanted to do at Planet Word. So it was just sort of, yeah, I don't, I can't pass this by. And wow. so I got a 99 year lease for $10 a year from the city in exchange for restoring the building and um and then because it is so historic it was very difficult to do just any changes that you wanted to do that you know I had to to uh meet with four different oversight bodies and they had to approve 
any architectural changes that we made. And um, so it was an adventure, but it all worked out and the Capital Planning Commission and the State Historic Preservation Officer and the National Park Service, they all ended up just being so overjoyed with this basically save saving of the building because it was crumbling. And, you know, one day I went there, it was raining inside the school. So it was raining outside. It was also raining inside. Oh my gosh. So, oh my gosh. Um, anyway, I feel really good about really preserving the Franklin school for another 150 years. Good for you. Good for you. I'm so impressed. Um, well, I want to talk more about the actual coming together of the building, but I also want to talk about take us through the take us through the museum. If we were if we were walking on a tour with you, you see the pictures in the background. What yeah, you, that's oh. really helpful. So, so the big picture of the Franklin School shows the facade that is kind of the money view, and that faces a very large park across the street. The back of the school was not intended ever to be seen. Um, so on the front, you can see their arches and all this cast iron trim, very ornate. But the back of the school had rectilinear window trim. And actually, it had a backyard. And the backyard was about 14 feet below street level. So um, where you're, if you move your head to the left, there, there was a brick wall <laughs> so that people on the street wouldn't fall into the backyard of the Franklin School. But the historic preservation people allowed me to pave over the backyard and therefore gain a gracious entry plaza and on that entry plaza is where you can see on the screen these two, uh, a mother and daughter, sort of looking up at a, um, a tree. It's a metal sculpture called Speaking Willow that um, we commissioned from uh, an artist who does data visualization art. His name is Rafael Lozano Hemmer. And he proposed this idea of Speaking Willow which is a metal tree with branches and dangling from all the branches, as you can see in the picture, are globe-shaped speakers and they're motion activated. The band around the tree trunk has little cameras. And when they capture some motion and somebody watch, walking under the branches, it triggers the speakers to start murmuring in 364 different languages. So when you have a whole bunch of people walking under the tree, it's creating this babble of sound. And um, it, the idea is that it, it gives you an idea of what's in store in the museum, a mix of language and technology. It's physical, you're moving, um, and you're hearing. You're hearing words and uh, so, so that's what happens when you enter the courtyard and then you enter the museum and you're told to begin your visit on the third floor and then work your way down. And so, you know, words and language is a gigantic topic to fit into any museum. And this is not especially big, but uh, we sort of basically decided that there were three concepts and we put it one, uh, one per floor. So the third floor is about words and languages of the world. The second floor of the galleries there are devoted to what you can do with words, creativity. And the two galleries on the main floor are all about the power of words and language. So advertising, copywriting, myths and disinformation, truth and advertising. And the idea was that 
then you exit the museum and you go out on the street and you hear people talking around you. You hear the multicultural city of Washington and you're more alert, you're more empathetic. So um, that's the visitor journey from individual words, languages, to what you do with them, to their power. Wow, that's really, really exciting. Um, sometimes I feel like there is no hope in terms of combating disinformation, in terms of the reality that legacy newspapers, trusted news and information sources are, are dwindling and there's a, a void and a lot of disinformation is stepping into this. I really applaud you for what you're doing, but do you ever just think, oh, you know, what what more can we do? How do we how do we do outreach? How do we how do we really fight this problem, man? <laughs> you know, I always say everything comes down to education first. Our schools have to be up to the task. Our teachers, our professors, you know, it's we rely on them um, to to help, uh, you know, create critical thinkers, re wide readers, you know, readers who read a diversity of of material and sources, and and stop and question if if you hear something that's surprising or sounds crazy then check it out. Don't just repeat it. And um, we have partners that we work with too, uh, organizations that are working on this. One is the News Literacy Project. They helped us uh, script an interactive activity that we have on mis and disinformation. And everything in the museum is interactive. You're, you're listening, you're talking, you're doing something. And same with that, interact with that mis and disinformation, what we call beacon. Uh, it's it's a screen, a video screen, but you're picking answers, you're you're hearing things and you're you're talking back. And um, so the news literacy project helped us script that and and we have examples that um that speak to young people, especially, you know, like uh, examples from the internet to make you aware of what's a paid plug, you know, uh, compared to well-sourced documented information. So it's just making people aware in a fun way that's relevant to them, that speaks to them. So um, we're not, we're not old school. We're not you know, you don't come to Planet Word and read, you you hear a lot and you're an active participant. So that's our idea of how you reach the people that you need to reach, especially young people. You don't have words on a wall. I have so many questions, but I, I also like to turn this over to our participants who have are equally as an interesting uh, if not more so than I am. So uh, <laughs> Laura Bellin uh, certainly fits that mark. Laura, do you have a question or a comment? Lori? The Bellin family? Hi, uh, yes. Laura. We've known the, the Bucks Bombs and the Bellins have been close friends for since before I've been alive. So <laughs> <We've> been <laughs> that's right. Time. I have a, it's kind of a two-part question. I mean, first of all, one of the challenges with this misinformation is when you tell people to do their own research, there are these networks of websites and, and sources that reinforce all the misinformation. So people will say, well, I did my research and that, and it, you know, whatever it was, whether it was ivermectin or uh, the stolen election or something, they can find information out there that reinforces that. So how do you counter that? And then also I've read some psychological research that when you confront someone with like a fact check mm -hmm. on, on their conspiracy theory, they actually, it actually reinforces their belief in the conspiracy theory rather than undermining their belief in the conspiracy theory. So, I mean, what, what's, how do we combat that? You know, 
it's not planet word is not going to solve this problem um but i think you just have to keep at uh you know confronting people showing them the truth or sources that you think have been vetted uh and and you know it's not going to be enough especially because money is involved and when profits are connected with you know peddling falsehoods that's not a good combination you know so i don't have any delusions that little planet word is going to fix this problem but you have to start somewhere and you have to feel like you yourself are doing the right thing you know just as small a drop in the bucket as that is you know then you can also just parents you know need to talk to their children and maybe the parents have bad beliefs and have been sucked into conspiracy theories and misinformation themselves but uh part of it is just stopping people and saying how do you know that where did that information come from and um you know it's a problem my daughter is an executive producer at npr it's a really big problem when there's a live interview and you have a guest who's spouting falsehoods yeah you have a choice do you stop them and confront them and ruin the show's flow and, you know, alienate your audience? It's it's a, a big problem that I don't think we've all solved yet. You know, Anne, I'm thinking about you living in Bethesda and in the Washington, D.C. area and all the world travel that you've had. And those of us in Iowa are confronted every day with a legislature and a governor that you know, they're banning books. They they passed a school voucher program that's over $7,000 a year for private school students, which of course starves the public, uh, the public schools eventually slowly and sometimes all at once. So I think some of us just feel in this mood of resignation. Um, that there's just no hope. So we could we could you know kind of stay in that space and and that would be probably not get us anywhere. Mm -hmm. Let's talk to you about what you see. What's I know you can't haven't been able to do an impact study yet, but you walk through that museum, you see the children's reaction, you see the interaction. What keeps you going? What, what there must be stories where you, you just go, yes, I'm so glad I did this, right? Yeah, um, you know, so Planet Word isn't intended to be a children's museum. And, uh, and what's really cool is if you look around is all the 20 and 30 somethings that are there, they <laughs> have sort of discovered us for dates which is really fun. Um, I was just meeting with someone who wants to do a Planet Word podcast. And he said he was here over Christmas week with his family, a group ranging from 10-year-olds to 90-year-olds. And they all had fun. And that's the kind of feedback. If you look at our Google reviews, and that's what people say. Because I was there with you know, my kids and my parents, and we all had a good time. And um, we set a goal for attendance of 150,000 for last year, and we had 160,000 visitors. So uh, we're, we're pleased about that. We could accommodate a lot more, but uh, we cap daily attendance at about 1,000. Uh, to make sure that the visitor experience is pleasant. And, um, but there are low times of year, uh, like right now, January, February, uh, some parts of 
late September after kids go back to school that are relatively quiet. And so we we don't have a marketing person yet, but when we get that marketing person, uh, that's going to be task one is how do we uh, fill in that those trough periods and get more visitors. Uh, but we have yeah. a, we have somebody on the call, Deb, who uh, recently visited Planet Word, and I've asked her to unmute mute and share her experience with us. Hi, Deb. Hi. It is so wonderful to be able to um, talk about this museum. It, um, we um, stayed a couple months ago um, in Washington, D.C. for a week. And that was one of the main museums that we wanted to go see. And we were lucky enough to get there on a day when it wasn't quite so busy. Um, and what was so interesting um, was starting on the third floor and sitting and um, looking at the uh, video basically that talked about uh, words and their communication. And I thought that was just so interesting and everybody who was sitting down was talking out loud and trying to answer the questions or trying to um, talk about what they were seeing. And I just thought that was so interesting rather than kind of being passive and just watching something. And you could say that about every single floor that we went on, that it was a time when you could go to any of the uh, presentations and you could, um, it, it was accessible. You were able to interact with it in a way where you came back and said, wow, that was so neat. And it was so different. Um, either, even other uh, museums that we have visited in the past, they're accessible. But you don't always walk away thinking, wow, that really was impactful. And uh, we just found it amazing. And so I just want to say thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, you really hit on exactly what I was trying to do. So I wanted this museum to be participatory, which is uh, kind of the new way to think about museum experiences. Uh, there's a book called The Participatory Museum, actually written by Nina Simon, who uh, is a distant cousin of my best friend from Des Moines, Sarah Mark, who is a museum educator herself. Uh, so I read Nina's book and it really made an impact on me um, in thinking about how to plan a museum. And when you think about words and language, your, your first reaction wouldn't be that it would be a physical a museum where you're, you know, moving and doing things, but you'd think, oh, it's probably reading and books and passive. And um, so I found an exhibit design company in New York that's known for its use of technology but also they got it. They knew that I wanted the technology and the interactivity and uh, being physical and, and using your voice, um, speaking. And um, my favorite times are when like, I was on Friday, I was showing uh, some Swedish visitors around. They are from the Nobel Foundation and they're doing a new museum about the Nobel Prize in Stockholm and they're also they got permission from the government to create a museum about Swedish and so this is their fifth group of visitors from Sweden who've come to Planet Word and so I was taking them through again and uh, and we were in this the word wall gallery that you just described with this 1000 word talking word wall and there was a field trip from like a high school in Washington and there was a, a young teenage boy who was so excited to interact with the word wall and for his words to be picked up by the voice recognition software and it was just exactly what I wanted to show that here's a way to engage young adolescent boys <laughs> with words and language. And uh, anyway, 
So the, the sí. Swedish man who was with me, he said, he he said, there's your there's your impact. You're doing what you want set out to do. So I'm just chuckling thinking of adolescent boys and seeing their words show up on a big screen. <laughs> I'll bet you there's some interesting combinations. Yeah. <laughs> so, and your background is in education. You be, you became a teacher at one point in your in your life. Is that what propelled you to do this? How? Tell me more about your vision. I mean, you created something out of nothing. How did that happen? Where? What experiences in your world did you draw on to bring this to life? So, first, I became a fifth grade. Well, I became a teacher in my forties, so really late in life. Uh, because I had first I had an idea after we moved back from living abroad to have an extracurricular uh, class about um, world cultures. So I did that for three years and it was actually really popular because it was a hands on class that um, I I started with one, but even that first year I had to make a second class because it was so popular, partly because we had food from all the countries that we learned about and food always does does the trick. Um, And then I said to myself, oh, okay, that was good, but you don't know what you're doing. And so I decided to go back to graduate school and get a master's in um, teaching. And uh, I taught fifth grade and then I taught first grade reading because it was a part-time job. And and I realized that with my life and my husband's career that I really couldn't handle more than a part-time job. So I taught beginning reading for nine years. And and then I retired when the principal that I loved uh, retired. But I wasn't done. I like... I knew so much about literacy. I really wanted to find an outlet for that. And uh, then I read about a new museum in in New York City called MoMath, the Museum of Mathematics. And they were bringing math to life with technology in a museum setting. And when I read that story, I said, that's it. That's what I want to do. I want to bring words and language to life and um, that started everything. I went on the internet and I typed in museum consultant <laughs> because uh, I didn't know anything about running a museum or building one or planning one. And I had a, a world-class consultant uh, that I ended up working with. And, uh, and then I was on this train that's like kept moving along and I had to to do everything like you know find a find a building find an executive director get a website uh raise money um find architects and contractors and so it kept me busy yes it did <laughs> and yes, learning did. and also learning and growing which is something that people should do whatever whatever age they're at just keep learning and growing Exactly. Bryce Oakley, you have a question. You are, yeah, go ahead. I'd like to follow up on the uh, critical uh, thinking discussion that uh, Julie had prompted you to uh, to talk about. Uh, both you and your husband are involved in that. Uh, I, I went to Roosevelt as well, and I discovered critical thinking in government classes and in English classes at Roosevelt. But my question is this, who is doing the best job or the best uh, uh, curriculum planning, uh, in your judgment, in bringing that earlier than college, bringing it to where I think it should be in the K-12 school systems? Uh, who's doing the best job of modeling how to go about putting that in and keeping it in a curriculum? You know, I wish I could comment, but I'm so removed from education now, but I'll tell you one person who's doing it and that, not to brag, is my daughter. (laughs) She has started her own uh, school in San Francisco. It's called Redbridge. And the whole idea behind it 
is that you have to become an agent of your own education because in this day and age, people are not going to have a job and a career that will last for 30 years. Everything will be changing. You have to be learning all the time and you have to be motivated to find, you know, someone to teach you or to find the information that you need. So in her school, the kids as young as five years old start with a, an advisor and they talk about their goals for the day or the year or the week and what they want to accomplish set the goals and then they advocate for themselves they they are at independence levels that they'll advocate to move up to the next independence level and it's not based on academic subjects like whether you've mastered addition or fractions or whatever it's whether you can demonstrate the skills that you need to be a lifelong self-motivated learner and um so, you know, I, I just think she's got an idea that a lot of people are list, you know, are interested in, and she goes to conferences and presents her ideas that, you know, we just have to take education in hand and, and, you know, make sure that we're responsible for ourselves and, uh, and what I'm doing here, too, is making sure that all the content at Planet Word is relevant to the people who come here. So the books that come to life in our magic library, they span a whole wide range. But we've got books where the you know main character is Black or Hispanic or, you know, books written in verse, books that are autobiographies, historical fiction, whatever content will capture someone's imagination and engage them. And I think that's really important to be relevant to, to whoever is, you know, looking to use words or become more educated. You know, it's just... Uh, and we we have galleries about songwriting and oratory and poetry and advertising copywriting. So all these different ways that we use words and language and communicate and express ourselves, not just reading in books. Okay, thanks, Gail. You had your hand up. I don't see you now. Are you still there? You are. No, I, I just took it down because it, it distracts me. And I was looking at the website and you have educator packets that are available for download. Mm -hmm. And a lot of recent research I've been looking at is showing that in order for society to become more civil, we have to learn to talk through differences. And I wondered if you have any packets that address that or you plan on doing anything that would relate to that. Yes, uh, we don't at the present time, but that is really high on my list because we are going to start to get into civics oh, connected good. to the elections and connected to the semi-quincentennial, I forget the word, for our 250th. Uh, and so we want to really uh, have programs on civil discourse, how to talk to each other. Uh, we're going to need to bring in some experts, people who know a lot more than anybody on our staff does, um, and figure out how how we can uh, pass that along. And so, do you. you have a lot of requests from public school or, well, not necessarily all public, but teachers about how to teach what you're trying to do with Planet Word? Um, you know, we have a lot of field trips. We had over 300 
last year. Um, and some of them are, uh, they have extension activities and they visit the galleries and, and we, you know, that's all been thought out. Um, other than that, you know, it, we're supplemental. Sure. You know, we are good not word. the core curriculum, except right. that everyone has to learn to be a good reader to do well in school. So um, I'm not sure I can answer your question better than that. Um, oh, that's good. Do you have um, like a two-year plan, five-year plan? Or we have a, getting yes, through the day? strategic framework that will help us get through the next two years. But um, otherwise, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we don't have, you know, a real strategic plan that would be normal, typically five years in length. Uh, you know, it's just so new. We it's opened during COVID. Nothing was normal. I so know. we couldn't extrapolate our early experience to the present or the future. Yeah. Finally, we're kind of at a steady state. Like I would say the last year and a half are pretty normal. And we can start to see trends and you know count on the kinds of you know donations that we get and things like that. But um Okay, I'm going to welcome those of you who are on the call to please uh, raise your hand and let me know if you have a question or a comment. Chuck, I always love to call on you. You know Chuck Offenberger, Ann? I don't believe I do. Um, I don't think we've ever met, Ann, but it's just fascinating. And I can't wait to get to the, your museum. And this just sounds like a, a great place for young people and for old word nerds like myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, as I listened, um, I, I, it occurs to me when I read Julie's uh, post this morning that you were going to be the guest today, that I don't know nearly enough about the Bucks bombs. And I'm ashamed of myself that I don't. But I was fascinated in your lifetime. You went from being born in Marshalltown to Bettendorf to Des Moines. What was the Bucks bomb family like back then? And then my second irrelevant question is, what is it like being married to Thomas Friedman? See, uh, I knew this would happen. <laughs> that's okay. It's all right. Um, so my father and his two older brothers worked together. They started out in, you know, working in Marshalltown in their father's grocery store. And one of them specialized in meat and the other in produce. And they took the train to Chicago and, you know, went to the markets there but then they heard this about this idea of shopping centers so they built the first one west of the mississippi and um they hit it like the time and the place and you know that i don't well i know for sure you can do that nowadays and um it is just amazing that they they had this idea perfect time when America was growing and the highway system, you know, was there. And, um, and um, so then they ended up eventually my, my mom and dad moved to Chicago because General Grove uh, bought out the uh, Sears real estate arm called Homeart. And that took them to Chicago and, um, being married to Tom. <laughs> um, it's the most sort of exciting, intellectually fulfilling kind of life that you can could ever have. Um, when we met in graduate school, uh, Randy Levitt, who was my old boyfriend from Des Moines, had met Tom in, at Brandeis and told us to look each other up because we were both going to be in London for graduate school. And uh, I had never met somebody who was so passionate about a subject and knew everything about it. So he already 
was a Middle East scholar and that he had a Marshall scholarship to study Middle East history and Arabic. And so it just opened up a whole world to me of people who were so knowledgeable, so well read about different subjects. And I was kind of a dilettante. I liked everything, but I wasn't an expert in anything. And um, and then we lived in Beirut during a civil war. Then we lived in Jerusalem for four years and had our two daughters there. And um, it just, you know, it was a great life. We traveled all over the world. And um, and I, to this day, I edit. I'm Tom's first editor. Um, so I edit all of his columns and his books. And um, I think that that is partly the key to a really great marriage is, you know, we're intellectually engaged all the time. I know what he's thinking, what his ideas are, and um, he's cheerleads me on, you know, to <laughs> crazy projects like Planet Word. <laughs> so. Chuck, I want to ha thank you for having the guts to ask that question. I was hoping you would. <laughs> I appreciate that. So how does your life today work in terms of your, this must be, you're in the office now at, at Planet Word. Um, I'm how, tired all the time. You're, I was going to say, you must be tired all the time. You're I'm tired all the time. And uh, I never had trouble sleeping before working on Planet Word, but it was just like, I have to keep lists by my bedside so they don't go around and around in my head and um, you know, it's just, there's, there's so much more we could do. Yeah. And people coming to us with ideas and partnership proposals. I had a podcast proposal discussion this morning. And, um, so, you know, I, I don't know how you kind of get off of this. this I don't either. Yeah, but, I don't um, either. But it's very fun and meeting amazing people. And uh, just, I do feel like it's important what we're doing. And especially also in downtown DC, I don't know if anyone realizes how dried up downtown DC is. Like 40% of offices are, you know, people are coming back to their offices. It's just devastated and there's this one little area of downtown dc with planet word and the renovated park across the street that is kind of keeping things happening in this area um and so i feel good about that you know and that comes also from what i saw in des moines how people would you know be so committed to the community and the like the Papa John Park and their their role models from growing up in Des Moines and Iowa for being active and giving back and um I'm glad to try to to do that here a little bit. I was struck by your answer about about your family about how visionary they were and 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 how the timing was right. And that's sort of you're echoing that with Planet Word in a way, because we're we're I think in the middle of um, a renaissance of of learning yes. educational. Would you well, agree? a renaissance of words? Yeah, think of all the underserved minority kids who now are writing rap lyrics. Yes a spoken word at the president's inaugural, you know, Amanda Gorman, the, just the attention to words in a positive way by people from every corner of society is amazing. And then there's since, let's say six years ago, the focus nationally on what's happening with language it just made Planet Word more and more relevant. And Lori, 
you know, questioned how could we have any impact on misinformation? And maybe, maybe we can't, but still somebody to say alternative facts. What are they? What, what does that mean? You know, fake news. Like I just want to be a place where people can come and to hear people discuss these ideas that are all focusing on words and language like never before. So I wanted to grab that moment. I just love it. And, you know, reading about uh, the story of the creation of the museum and the speculation of between 20 to $50 million to get it off the ground, probably out of the reach of most people on this call. That said, if you were to advise somebody who's living in Jefferson, Iowa, like Chuck is right now, and there's a, you know, there's a vacant building, there are lots of vacant buildings in Iowa in these small towns, and somebody listening to this podcast says, by golly, I want to create a planet word in, you know, Algona. How? <laughs> Why not? Could, could, would you advise, what would you advise them? Well, it sounds easy and it, it would be great. We've had requests from all over for, do you do traveling exhibits? You know, can you make a planet word in my state and in Omaha and in New Jersey and in, you know, Singapore? But it's not that easy. So planet word is really about the English language, even though our biggest gallery is about the diversity of this, of languages of the world. But a lot of it is bringing a focus on what we do with English. And it doesn't translate. Okay, so there's that. Another thing that people love about Planet Word is the sort of juxtaposition of this really old, ornate building with these sleek, high-tech, experiences so it's just a cool combination but um besides being really expensive because they're high tech you take a lot of maintenance things go obsolete you know in a couple years computers things that we rely on to run our exhibits they don't last forever so there's ongoing costs and then there's all the licensing we did, you know, to authors, to lyricists, to the people who wrote the music in our carry, you know, all of that was negotiated and paid for. And so it's, you know, and, and basically a lot of those licenses are to, for use of something at Planet Word, uh. you know, not somewhere else so it sounds easy but you know and and things are delicate we have a whole we have a team of people who work they go around every morning and check that all the exhibits are working because they're all based on computers and and we don't even know why one morning this you know, what we call beacon has this subject on it. And the next morning it's, it's in another gallery, the same. So how did that happen? And just, you know, it's, it's not easy and it's not so easily replicable that I could say, yeah, do it. You know? And we had extremely generous major donors who have funded our galleries and our experiences. And so uh, originally I raised $25 million from those people just for the gallery experiences, not for the renovation that I did myself. But um, so everything costs a lot of money. Oh, it does. It does. You know, one of the heartbreaks for me is the, is the demise of the museum. I thought that was so wonderful. Yeah, me too. 
what happened to all of those displays? And I was hoping Peggy well, I've been talking. Been on- I've been talking to the Freedom Forum about that. Great. Um, they've, I know, because there was something that my kids loved that would be perfect for Planet Word. And I would love to find a little corner for that um, about, you know, editors making uh, ethical decisions. Um, and I would love to to borrow or license or whatever that exhibit. But there, there's something happening there with a lot of personnel change, even though they're not even open. So they haven't gotten back to me. They said they were, but I agree. I, I loved uh, the museum and we were not going to touch journalism. We're not going to have Shakespeare or journalism at Planet Word because we had great museums already with expertise in those areas. But when the museum closed, I said, okay, you know, there's a vacuum here. We, we've got to fill it. So. I'll take this offline with you, but there's a woman by the name of Peggy Engel. Do you know Peggy Engel? Okay. She was, she's another former Iowan, um, but she was the curator of the first museum and I'm, she's the most connected person I know, and I will connect you and we'll, you'll, we'll, you'll all live happily ever after. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. <laughs> all right. Any other final comments, questions? Bob, now and I see you're on the call. Why don't you hop on and say hello? Can you do that? Or did you, are you, no? No? Okay. So you have a minute here to ask the people on this call what they think or what they would like to see more of or less of. Is there anything you'd like to get from folks on this call, Anne? Um. Well, when are they going to come to Washington and visit <laughs> and, and feedback? I always like feedback. You know, I want to know what worked, what didn't work. Um, you know, are they like, I was proud to be from Iowa. I thought like I got a great education. I was ready for college and uh, I was a reader I love reading. I, you know, so it's sad to think that maybe that isn't the case anymore. But um, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, even the Washington Post is having its own problems and is a shadow of its former self. Twenty percent of the Los Angeles Times staff was laid off the other day. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's. I don't know. It's, it's a different world. Um, and in Iowa, we um, we have uh, the voucher system, as I mentioned earlier, that's really hurting public schools. And the and the question that I I hope you have a chance to answer is um, with book banning and things like that. How are you going to handle the potential for uh, somebody who's involved with the school tour wanting to uh, not have their students see a particular exhibit or a particular word. Have you run into that yet? And then we're going to go to Bob. No, we haven't. Um, We're a private museum. I don't really care. Yay! Great answer. (laughs) You know, what's the ad planet word has, is like, has been thought about deeply. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Everything here, I can support wholeheartedly. All the books, the poetry that we have in our poetry nook, which, you know, they're they're all here for a reason. And uh, it's a, don't look at the books. You know, we don't force anybody. You don't like the song that's playing in karaoke? Go leave, go, go do something else, you know. <laughs> Great answer. Bob, now go ahead and wrap up this for us. And Well, it was just, it's just a practical question uh, for uh, kids in general and our own set of grandkids and, and others. Do you take internships at the museum? Do you have an internship program? I, we don't because we don't have the bandwidth to properly supervise an internship program and make sure that people were getting something out of it 
when we do have an internship, I want it to be run by one of the local universities and let them do the work. Um, so unfortunately, like we have people who want to volunteer here and we don't even have a volunteer program because you can't have volunteers doing what you pay your staff to do. And so, you know, right now, there's not a lot of things that are left over that we don't have our staff working on. But so uh, right now we don't have any internship possibilities and, um, you know, it would be great. And we get, I get letters every week. Thank you. And thank you so much. This has been delightful to have you. We really appreciate it. And I know there's Barry Pyatt's on the call. He's one of our columnists with the Iowa Writers Collaborative. He lives in Washington, oh. and uh, I'm sure he'll be there fairly soon, okay. as well, all of us at some point. Thank you, and thanks for all you do. Okay, thank you, Julie. This was delightful. Thank you.